Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. The title of this section of Scripture will be Entering into the Rest of God. Our context actually is entering the rest of God because that's what the author of the book of Hebrews was talking about at the end of chapter 3. So we start with verse 1. Therefore, while the promise to enter his rest remains, let us fear that none of you should miss it. What's the therefore, therefore? Because of the sad fate of the disobedient Israelites, don't fail to enter into his rest. The Israelites didn't enter the promised land because of their unbelief, and don't you imitate their, therefore, because they didn't do that, don't you imitate their sad fate. The therefore is referring to the last part of Hebrews 3. Verses 15 through 19, which says this, As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his, enter in, enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 4, because they provoked God for 40 years and their bodies fell like corpses as corpses in the wilderness, therefore, don't think of imitating those guys. Now you see the the author of the book of Hebrews is using Old Testament history, the, the story of the rebellious Jews of the Exodus, to show what bad things happened to them. And he's saying, don't let those bad things happen to you. Let us fear that none of you should miss it. Well, now, there is a fundamental important question to answer in this chapter. Who is this exhortation addressed to? Don't miss the rest of God. Is it addressed to Christians who are sinning and who are under the law? In my opinion, that's who it's addressed to. And I'm going to make a case for it right now. These Christians who are under the law would be missing a peaceful, godly life on this earth, and they would not be entering, entering into God's rest That, of course, does not mean they will lose their salvation. They'll just lose their peace. Note that the sinning Christian is said to miss God's rest. The NIV has fall short of God's rest. It says fall short of God's rest, not to fall out of God's rest. As Steve Ackerson pointed out, this is not talking about Christians losing their salvation. And an even stronger argument is to whom is the book addressed? In the previous chapter, the author called Hebrews brothers. Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, calling. go to verse chapter 4. Don't miss the rest. Well, if you're brothers and not missing the rest of God, it's obviously not talking about failing to get saved. It's not talking about non-Christians, although some people hold that. I don't. Hebrews 3:12. Take care, brethren that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Take care, brethren. So the author is addressing brethren, and he says, let us fear that none of you brethren should miss the rest of God. He's not talking, a, a brethren is not going to miss king uh, heaven. He's already saved, but he can miss a life of peace as he goes back into legalism. Now, that's my view. The other option is, is that the People to whom this verse is addressed are non-Christians. Albert Barnes believes that. And then all the things that would be missed by missing that rest would be the things of salvation that would be missed. Now, who could that have been addressed to? Who were these particular non-Christians, according to Barnes, who were addressed? Well, here's some examples. External professors of Christianity, in other words, hypocrites, or people who thought they were saved and weren't. Legalists wrongly expecting to be saved of their own works. Unsaved people who defer a decision to believe. 
people convicted of sin but who still can't make this decision to believe. Well, all that sounds very nice, but I don't believe it. I believe he's talking about stay away from this legalism because it fits the whole context of the book. Don't fall back. Don't fall away from grace and go back into Judaism. Now, this rest that we're going to be talking about in this entire section of 11 verses, we need to know what it is. Well, here's some options as to what. Well, it's obviously in referring to in its in its former reference in the Old Testament in Exodus is talking about the promised land. But the question is, is what is that promised land ultimately symbolic of? What is it a type of? Some people say salvation, option one. But the problem with that, enter into the rest, don't fail to enter into salvation. The addressees were already brothers, as I've just said. Brothers don't enter into salvation. They are already in salvation. So I don't think the promised land is a symbol the rest, which is the promised land, is a symbol of salvation. It could be a symbol of heaven. Again, we've got the problem that the addressees were already brothers. Brothers aren't going to fail to enter into heaven unless you believe you can lose your salvation, which I don't. That's another issue. So that's not it. But here's what John Gill says, and I agree with him. The rest refers to rest and peace in Christ's kingdom on this earth. Now that, my fellow Christians, is something that's very easy to miss if you're a Christian. You get under the law, and your peace will go flying right out the window, and your rest will go right along with it. Now, of course, that rest and peace will continue on into heaven. We're not ex excluding the idea of heaven here, obviously. But I believe he's talking about resting in peace right here while you're on this earth. Now, here's a quote from John Gill. Saints should be concerned so to behave that they might not seem to fail of the doctrine of the grace of God and to be disappointed of that rest and peace promised in it. That basically agrees with what I, what I just said. Adam Clark says this, quote, Canaan was a type of the grand privileges of the gospel of Christ and of the glorious eternity which, to which they lead. Again, that's rest and peace as in the gospel of Christ. All right, so we're going to take the point of view for the rest of this discussion that rest refers to freedom from legalistic bondage and that the people who might miss that peace and rest are Christian Jews who are being tempted to go back into the legalism of Judaism. Now, in verse 1, we are told that the promise to enter his rest remains. Again, that, meant, that tends to make me think the rest is talking about not about heaven, because if you... If you already are promised to enter into heaven, well, why are you telling Christians, brothers, that there still remains a chance for them to get into heaven? They've already in heaven. There's nothing remaining to that. Once you're in, you're in. But if you're living in legalistic bondage and fear and guilt, well, then there is a remaining promise for you to enter into rest. Now, this opportunity to enter into rest remains. Here's another question. When will the opportunity pass? Here's some options from Steve Ackerson. If the Christians sin so much, God gives them over to their sin, and then they have no more opportunity to enter into the rest. For example, in Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Well, that's talking about entering into salvation. Romans 1.26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Well, that's talking about unsaved lesbians there, and unsaved sexually impure people. They, once they get so hardened in their sin that God's going to give them over to it and say, okay, that's what you want, that's what you got. But that's assuming that the rest is talking about heaven, the opportunity to pass for people to get to heaven. But that's not what this verse is talking about, in my opinion. It's talking about the opportunity to enter into God's rest. In which case, the opportunity to, that remains for you to enter into God's rest will last as long as you live. 
when death occurs, of course, then you can't enter into that rest anymore. Or when Jesus comes back at the second coming, if that happens, of course, you can't enter into rest anymore. But those, I don't think that's what the author's talking about. He's saying that the door to peace, freedom from legalism, is open right now. So enter into it. Today, as he will say many times in just a minute. Now, the author in verse 1 says that, Let us fear that none of you should miss it. Let us be afraid that none of you should miss this opportunity to enter rest. To shake in your boots because of the fact that somebody might not get free from legalism. That shows how important this exhortation is to be free from legalism and to escape it. We go to verse 2, Hebrews 4. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Now the good news that was preached to us, to the Hebrew Christians, I'm going to call them the 60-plus A.D. Christians, they had the gospel preached to them, obviously they were Christians. Just as they also had the good news preached to them, the they would refer to the Exodus Jews, which was 1450-something B.C., roughly 1500 years before the Hebrew Christians of the 60 A.D. plus, 60 plus A.D. Christians, to distinguish the two. Now, the reason I say that is because the author of the book of Hebrews is going to constantly compare the Exodus Jews with the current 8060 Jews to try to exhort them not to fall into the same disasters that the Exodus Jews fell into. Okay, so they, just as they also had good news preached to them, well, the next question is, is how did the Exodus Jews have good news preached to them? Well, John Gill says, through types and shadows. I say this, how about Moses being a type of Christ delivering his people from bondage? That's a pretty good type. Moses, the lawgiver, Jesus is the new lawgiver, the law of Christ. Moses leads, leads his people out of Egyptian bondage and slavery, and Jesus leads his people out of slavery to sin. Now, these Old Testament Exodus Jews had the word preached to them through their types and shadows, but it didn't profit them. Why? Because that gospel was not united by faith in those who heard. In other words, the hearers of the word through the types and the shadows, they heard the types and the shadows, but they didn't believe in them. That's what faith means, is to believe. John 3.18 says this, He who believes in him is not judged. He, does not, he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. No belief, no salvation, no profit. No faith, no salvation, no profit. Now at the end of verse 2, the author says that the word, the word of truth, the word that was preached to, to the Old Testament Jews, through the types and shadows, it was not united by faith in those who heard. There's actually an alternate translation there. I gave you the New American Standard Bible's translation. It, the word, was not united by faith in those who heard. I like that. I believe you have the word, objective word, subjective faith. You mix the two, you've got a great marriage. Salvation is birth. But here's the alternative translation, as mentioned by Adam Clark, and the Holman Christian Study Bible takes the alternative translation. It says this, the message, the word, they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. In other words, the disobedient Israelites were not united with the believing Israelites. I suspect that grammatically you can go either way, but I like the New American Standard translation better. You've got to hear the word objectively, and then you've got to subjectively, subjectively unite that word by faith in your heart, or you ain't going to enter into God's rest. You're not going to be profited now, that word united by faith, King James translates as mixed. I'm going to give you a great, great quote from Adam Clark about what the word 
being mixed with faith means. He's going to use a biological metaphor. Now, Clark is writing in the 1800s. And 19th century medicine, of course, is a little bit different than it is today, but it's just a great quote. Let me read it to you. The word synchromonos, mixed, is peculiarly expressive. It is a metaphor taken from the nutrition of the human body by mixing the aliment taken into the stomach with the saliva and gastric juice, in consequence of which it is concocted, digested, reduced into chyle, which, absorbed by the lacteal vessels and thrown into the blood, becomes the means of increasing and supporting the body. One of the words, the word of God is actually eaten by us, and it becomes a part of our body as it as the stomach digested or as the heart digested and puts it into our bloodstream speaking metaphorically adam clark was a polymath he knew everything only thing he didn't understand was predestination now he didn't know anything about that because he was an armenian but by golly anything else in the world he knew about it he was one learned dude we go to verse 3 hebrews 4 for we who have believed enter the rest In keeping with what he has said, so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. Now, first of all, the first part of that verse is a parenthesis, as my home and Christian study Bible has it, for we who have believed enter the rest. Now, that parenthesis is sandwiched, is a positive statement sandwiched between two negative statements. In verse 2, we see that the word we see that the message that the Exodus Jews received was not believed, as I just said. And now here in verse 3, we'll see God swears in anger, you're not going to enter my rest. Those are two negative things. But right in the middle is the positive things. Well, we who have believed enter the rest. Well, believe means to have faith in. You have faith in God as opposed to your works. You're going to have grace and peace. You're going to have it in heaven too, of course. We're not excluding that. But basically talking about all this life. Let's go back and look at this thing about belief and what, how it's connected with rest. In Hebrews 3:18 and 19, previous chapter. And who did he swear to that they would not enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And belief is the same thing as faith. So they didn't have faith. They didn't enter. Now, we have believed enter the rest. I've already mentioned this. I'll mention it again. What, is the, what are the options as to what this rest actually is? Originally, in the Old Testament, it was the promised land, but now what does the promised land point to? Option number A, heaven. Now, John Gill denies that, as I do too. Adam Clark affirms that it's heaven. He says, there must, me- there must be meant a rest still future, namely that which remaineth for the people of God in heaven. Option number two is rest and peace in Christ in this life, as John Gill affirms, and that's what I affirm too. Here's a quote, spiritual resting from Gill. Spiritual rest in Christ under the gospel dispensation, which is a rest from the burden of the law of Moses and from all toil and labor for life and salvation by works, and lies in an enjoyment of much inward peace of soul. Now, the reason I think it's freedom from legalism and not heaven that is being talked about here, a peaceful and restful freedom from legalism, is because of the last part of verse 3. And yet his works have been finished. God finishes working. Therefore, He's already done everything, all the work that needs to be done, so you don't need to do work. The context is not going to heaven. The context is getting out from legalism. Now, there might be a slight problem in John Gill's view, in my view, that the author is talking about rest, entering into the rest and peace of Christ in this life for believers who are under legalistic bondage. And here's the problem. The exodus rest was salvation. They didn't enter the rest because of disobedience. And so, therefore, they didn't enter the promised land. 
Now that makes the author's application not so precise because these 8060s Hebrews, according to Gill's interpretation, were looking for peace from legalism. That was what the rest was. Not salvation, but peace. Well, my answer to that is the Old Testament Jews were already the people of God, just like the Hebrew Christians were. But being the people of God did not guarantee them peace. They could have had, instead of wandering around in the wilderness, they could have had peace by crossing the Jordan River and going into the land. And just likewise, the Hebrew Christians are already the people of God. And instead of wandering around and, and falling back into Judaism, they could cross the Jordan River and enter into peace. So maybe the analogy is not perfectly exact, but I think the preponderance of the evidence indicates to me that the author of Hebrews is saying, get out from legalism and enter into peace. And that makes a great application for modern-day Christians, folks. Modern-day Christians are already in heaven. But how many modern-day Christians do you know that do not know the peace of Christ? I would recommend a book to you, The Rest of the Gospel, when the partial gospel has worn you out. Talking about getting out from one of the lawless Christians that I my wife and I bought 50 copies of that book to pass out because I saw so much legalism and condemnation around. Get out of it. And the Hebrew Christians had the same problem that we do. Now, toward these rebellious Jews who did not enter into the promised land, who did not enter into the rest, the author says that God swore in his wrath that they are not going to enter into his rest. Now, that is original quote from Psalm 95:11. So I swore in my anger they will not enter into my rest. And Hebrews 3:11. He quotes that Psalm 95, verse 11 again. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. And then here, right here in Hebrews 4, 5, again in that passage he says, they will not enter my rest. Actually, I'm in 4, 3 right now. They will not enter my rest. And again in 4, 5 he repeats it, they will never enter my rest. So we talk about three times the author of the book of Hebrews in two chapters quotes Psalm 95, 11. He's driving a point home here, is he not? Enter into my rest, Hebrew Christians. Now notice when David makes the comment, Psalm 9511, he's not talking about Exodus Jews, roughly 1450-something B.C. He's about 1000 B.C., so he's roughly, what, 500 years later. He's saying that, hey, he's implying strongly, hey, Israel's still not entering into God's rest. Well, obviously they had entered into the literal occupation of Canaan, as Jamie Foster and Brown says, under Joshua. So that's not what David's talking about. He's talking about having peace with God, not entering into real estate. And since the author of Hebrews is quoting David, talking about entering to God's rest, a spiritual state of mind, a state of being, he's not talking about entering into the promise, the physical promised land. That's what the author of the book of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, enter into a spiritual state of rest with your Lord. God says, I swore in my anger. The NASB has, I swore in my wrath. There are only two options for humans, wrath or rest. As Steve Atkinson succinctly puts it, you've got two choices. That's for human beings in general. But for Christians, we are not destined to suffer the wrath of God. As Paul says in one of the Thessalonian letters, we don't suffer his wrath, but we do suffer his chastisement. As this book of Hebrews will shortly point out, I think it's chapter 12. And oh boy, if you've ever been chastised by God, as I have, oh boy. Terrible. It's almost nothing worse. <laughs> so it's the same thing as when I was a kid and got, threatened to get spanked. I hated the thought of it. So you can either have chastisement arrest if you're a Christian or wrath arrest if you're a non-Christian. Why were they chastised? Why did God give the anger to the Israelites because they didn't enter into the rest? But, uh, uh, why did he give them, why did he swear in his wrath? Is because they would not enter into his rest. Here's an analogy. This is from Steve Ackerson. Many on the Titanic would not get into half-filled lifeboats. They didn't think the ship was going to sink. Well, I'm not going to leave the world. I'm not going to get in one of those little dinky 
lifeboats floating out here in the cold, icy ocean floating around. I'm not going to do that. I might drown. Of course, they stayed on the Titanic and they sunk. And there's a lot of people that think the Earth is like the world. Their job, their society, whatever, is like the Titanic. It's not ever going to sink. Oh, yes, it will. Sooner or later, your world's going to sink. And you're going to be sorry you didn't enter into the rest of God and the peace of God, knowing that he's going to take care of you no matter what happens to your boat. Now, the end of verse 3, we see, and yet his works, God's works, have been finished since the foundation of the world. That's referring to Genesis, the six days of salvation. And at the end of those six days of salvation, God rested and said to rest. I don't have the quote in front of me, but you know what's in there. Well, here it is, Genesis 2.2. 2. By the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So he rested, so his work was finished, and the implication is, if God's finished his work, there's no more work that needs to be done, so you legalists need to forget about your fast days, your fast, your feast days, your ceremonies, your rituals, your washing of your cups and your hands and all that stuff. That's not going to get you saved. The work of God for salvation has already been finished. It was finished on the cross when Jesus died. Nonetheless, even though God's done that, there are still people First of all, unbelievers who are stupid and obstinate enough not to enter into the into salvation. And believers are stupid and obstinate enough not to get free from the law of Moses. They won't enter into freedom and peace by shucking their legalism. The Jewish 8060 legalists are still trying to finish God's work for him. God's work's finished. They don't need to be finished, need to be working anymore. There's no more work that a Hebrew Christian could do. We go to verse 4, Hebrews 4. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day God rested from all his works. Somewhere is Genesis 2.2, which I just read. By the seventh day God completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now I say that the author quotes from there. I'm thinking that's pretty clear. John Gill says yes. Jameson Fawcett says yes. Adam Clark says probably. I don't know why probably. It seems to me clear. That's where he's quoting from. Now, the next question is, why did he mention Genesis 2 when he quoted? He just said somewhere. Steve Atkinson has an, uh, an opinion that that just shows that the author could remember where the quotation came from. And I can, I, I can handle that. Other opinions, for example, from Gill, Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that rather the author did know where the quote came from, but he knew that the quote was so well known by the Jews that he was writing to, there was no need to give a citation. Here's John Gill, because the apostle is writing to Jews who were conversant with the scriptures and knew full well who said the words and where they were, and it is usual with the Jews to cite passages in this manner. Adam Clark says it was common thus to express the testimony of any of the inspired writers. Adam Clark says, quote, the mode of quotation therefore implies not ignorance, but reverence. Jameson Fawcett and Brown say the usual way of this, this saying somewhere it says, is, quote, the usual way of quoting Scripture to readers familiar with it. Okay, well, that's a minor point. But at any rate, he's quoting Genesis, and of course the major point is, is God rested from his labors, so therefore you need to rest from your works. We go to verse 5, Hebrews 4. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Again, this is the third time Psalms 95.11 has been quoted in Scripture. Psalm 95.11 says, so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Here's three times. Hebrews 3.11, three times that the author quotes this Psalm 95.11 in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. Hebrews 3.11, so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Hebrews 4.3, for we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said, so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Hebrews 4.5, again in that passage he says they will never enter my rest. He's trying to make a point. Get out from under the law. 
We go to verse 6, Hebrews 4. Since it remains for some to enter it, the rest, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter the rest because of disobedience. For it remains for some. The way of peace and rest is always open for some. It's actually open for all believers. But some remain and don't enter. But the opportunity is always there. Any Christian can always get rid of the law and rely on Christ's finished work on the cross for his peace and his safety and his rest and his peace of mind. Remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience. Those who formerly received the good news were the Israelite Old Testament Exodus Israelites. They had the gospel preached to them through types, as we mentioned earlier. They did not enter into the promised land with Joshua because they disobeyed, disobeyed Moses constantly all the way through the wanderings in the wilderness. We don't need to go through that again. I think that's obvious. Hebrews 4.2 previous verse summarizes this, for we also have received the good news just as they did, just as the Israelite Exodus Jews received the good news, but the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not reunited with those who heard it in faith, or because it, the message, was not united in faith. Unbelief and disobedience are closely related. We see that we're, Hebrews 3.19, we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So you want to have the peace of Christ, you better believe him. Just as simple as that. Hebrews 4, 7, again, he specifies a certain day. The again means he's quoting again a verse he's already quoted before. He specifies a certain day, today. Well, let's just get that out of the way. Where else does he quote that? Two previous times, the author has cited Psalm 95, 7 through 8. So let's read Psalm 95, 7 through 8. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, which means strife, as on that day at Massa, which means testing in the wilderness, that was at the beginning of the 40-year sojourn in the wilderness of Sin at Rephidim. That's the Old Testament psalm, and the quotation is here in verse Hebrews 4, 7, which I just read. He specifies a certain day today. In chapter 3 of Hebrews, verses 7 through 8, the author says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hebrews 3:15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So that phrase, today and don't harden your hearts, is mentioned at Psalm 95 and is quoted from Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3, 7 and 8, Hebrews 3, 15, and Hebrews 4, 2. Three times. Don't harden your hearts. Today, don't harden your hearts. Well, obviously, the point the author is trying to make is, look, you Hebrew Christians, today, 80, 60 plus, wherever it is in the 60s, don't harden your hearts just like these rebellious Israelites did. Don't be like them. Now, the author says he specifies a certain day. He is God who specifies a certain day. Well, how did God do that? Well, in this, in these quotations of this Psalm 95, we see that the passage, the, the idea, the concept of today, don't harden your hearts, is said to be written by David, number one, number two, by the Holy Spirit, and number three, by God. David, the Holy Spirit, and God. David writes, he's writing what God wants. The Holy Spirit writes, he's writing what God wants, and so forth. Interesting stuff, point of bibliology. Well, let's see how David cites, how David writes his original psalm. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Well, that's just the psalm. Well, how do we know it was David that wrote the psalm? Well, actually, it doesn't say in Psalm 95 that David wrote the psalm. However, the Jews assumed that if an author was not mentioned in the 
book of Psalms that David wrote it. That's kind of what I do too. I just assume David wrote it when it, when there's no mention of who author wrote it. So, in Hebrews 4, 7, the author specifically says, speaking through David, he says that psalm was written by David. So, we're going to assume that this is inspired and that David wrote the original psalm. The Holy Spirit is said to have expressed that sentiment today, don't harden your hearts. This is in Hebrews 3, 7, and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And God, in Hebrews 4, 7, which is the verse we're on now, it says, He, God, and you have to go through the, go back to verse 4 to see the context, which is easy to do. He, God, the Father, again specifies a certain day. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So God, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, the third person, and David himself, have written the same thing. So what does this prove? It proves that the Bible was written by men under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It proves that the Holy Spirit is God. And it proves that the Bible was written by God. So all you liberals who want to trash the Son of God, wake up. You're throwing out your salvation. You're not being smart. What's the point of saying today all the time? It means, hey, do it now. Don't wait around. Repent. Don't harden your hearts. Enter into God's rest. So God speaks through David. I already mentioned David is, although we don't know the psalm was written by David, it was a common Jewish practice to assign David as the author of anonymous psalms. So we assume it's Saul, David that wrote that psalm. Speaking through David after such a long time, that was, what, a thousand years after the Exodus? Excuse me, I shouldn't say a thousand years. That's about 500 years after the Exodus. What is it, 1456, I think, is the traditional date of the Exodus. And I've forgotten David's date. He's right around 1000 A.D. or so. So you're talking about roughly 500 years after Moses lived, after a long time, David's still writing about entering into the rest of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why is David talking about it so long? Why did the author bring up the point that David was so long after the original Jews? After such a long time is the quote-unquote, long time did David write this. He's showing that although the original day of rest had passed with no entrance during the Exodus, they didn't enter the Promised Land, nonetheless, God in David's time is giving another day in which we can enter rest so we can be the people of his pasture and sheep under his care. There was still a second chance in David's time to enter God's rest. There is therefore still a third chance in the time of the Hebrews to enter God's rest. And that rest, of course, in my opinion, is freedom from the law. Now, the very fact that David is talking about entering into rest shows that the rest can't, cannot be referring to physically entering into the promised land because under Joshua, the Jews actually did enter. Some of the Jews did actually enter into the promised land. The disobedient ones did not. But the whole point is, is that David is still talking about something that happened a long time ago, and he's still talking about entering into God's rest. Believe in him. And now the author of the book of Hebrews is using the same idea. Enter into God's rest. Get rid of your legalistic bondages. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. The day or time of rest relative to the ancient Jews being over and past and a long time having elapsed between, between God's displeasure shown to the disobedient Jews in the wilderness and the days of David, about 500 years, and the true rest not having been enjoyed, God in his mercy has instituted another day, has given another dispensation of mercy and goodness by Christ Jesus. And now it may be said as formerly, today, if you will hear his voice, Harden not your hearts. God speaks now as he spoke before. His voice is in the gospel as it was in the law. In other words, get free from legalism. Hebrews 4, 8. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Joshua replaced Moses as the leader of Israel, of course. Now, actually, Joshua did lead Israel into the promised land. So the Israelites actually had entered into rest because the original meaning of rest was the promised land. But they didn't have rest. They didn't enter into the rest in the true sense that God had intended. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. The rest from the wilderness only typified the ultimate salvation rest in Christ. So what the author is saying here, for if Joshua had ultimately given them rest, given them rest, if he had given them rest in the full sense that God meant, God wouldn't have spoken later about another day of rest, later being when David talked about it 500 years later. And, of course, now the book, author of the book of Hebrews is talking about it 1,000 years later. So we can't confuse the type with the antitype, the shadow with the substance. Joshua is a type of Christ. He led the Israelites into the promised land, into rest, typically. But Christ, antitypically, Christ, the substance of Joshua's shadow, Christ led the Israelites into the kingdom of God in union with Christ and peace with Christ. Jesus leads the church into the rest of his new covenant kingdom. Now, the author says God would not have spoken later, later than Joshua giving them rest. That's referring to David 500 years later, as I've already said. And God would not have spoken later about another day, our author says. What other day? The gospel dispensation, the new covenant, the times of the Messiah, as John Gill says. That's what the author is talking about, the new covenant times of rest, spiritual rest, freedom from law, freedom from legalism. Now, I'm, I've got to make a comment about an extremely horrible KGV verse. Translation. If you want to slow down a KJV-only advocate, this is the verse to give them. Now, I usually say, I'm not going to use a Bible that has the word piss in it. That's just sort of facetious when I say that, because that is in there. But this is even better. Hebrews 4.8, KJV. For if Jesus had given them rest, God would not have spoken later. Let me get the actual KJV translation to quote, quote it exactly. All right, here it is, Hebrews 4, 8, KJV. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? If Jesus had given them rest, why would Jesus not have given them rest? And, and this is talking about the Old Testament. Why would you mention Jesus there? That is a horrible, horrible translation. It sounds like Jesus didn't give those people rest. Well, maybe I guess you could say Jesus, since it was in the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't given them rest yet because we hadn't gotten to the New Testament yet. I don't know, but that's a bad translation. Nobody ever. Joshua means salvation, and Jesus means salvation, and so the words are similar, and that's how they, why they did that, but that's just bad. It's if Joshua had given them rest, no, he did not. Here's what Adam Clark says about that KGV translation. It is truly surprising that our translators should have rendered the Aesus of the text Jesus and not Joshua, who is most clearly intended. Here, here. We go to Hebrews 4, verses 9 through 11, and we'll finish. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people, for the person who has entered his rest has rested, his rest, has rested from his own works just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. So now we see the resting is not resting in heaven, it's resting from works. And that's why I think this is what he's talking about entering the rest is getting, getting out from under legalism. So when that Sabbath rest remains for God's people, it means a day of the Sabbath where you don't work. And the, the symbolism there is just as you don't do physical labor on the Sabbath in your daily life, likewise in your spiritual life, you don't work to make yourself 
acceptable before God because your works are filthy rags compared to what God expects for works. Now, that's not saying there's anything wrong with doing good works after you're saved. Of course not. But trying to get saved by doing works, all you're doing is making yourself miserable. You're not doing a thing. Now, why does he say, therefore? He's referring back to the previous verse where God spoke about later there will be another day of rest. God has spoken later about another day of rest, talking about Christ in the New Covenant era. And because Jesus in the New Covenant era is here, having done his work, therefore a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. Since he's done his work, we can rest in that work. That Sabbath rest, the author is not talking about resting on a Saturday Sabbath, just like he was not talking about resting from literally wandering in the wilderness. Now, interesting point, this is a little bit, mm, shall I say, pinheaded, a little nerdy, but these commentators who spend so many hours delving into such narrow points, they do have their uses every once in a while. I use them all the time, actually, because they say me, they teach me a lot of stuff that I never would, otherwise would never know. Here's what they say. Here's what Jameson Foster and Brown say about the word rest. Quote, the rest in Hebrews 4.8 is Greek katapausis, and the Hebrew is Noah, rest from weariness as the ark rested on Ararat after its tossings to and fro, and as Israel under Joshua enjoyed at last rest from war in Canaan. But the rest here in Hebrews 4.9, therefore a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. This is the nobler and more exalted Hebrew Sabbath rest, which literally means cessation, rest from work when finished, as God rested when he was finished. The two ideas of rest combined give the perfect view of the heavenly Sabbath, rest from weariness, sorrow and sin, and rest in the completion of God's new creation. Well, I don't think that I would tend to, that I would want to hair split about the difference in those meanings. James and Foster Brown just puts them together, rest from work and weariness, and then rest in the completion of God's new creation, the Sabbath rest. But at any rate, it's all going back to what God did in the creation of the world. He rested on the seventh day. That's a pretty good pattern for us to imitate. That Sabbath rest remains for God's people, so you Hebrew Christians need to jump in it. For the person who has entered his rest is rested from his own work. So Hebrew Christians, quit trying with your legalistic keeping of feast days and doing fast and all that kind of stuff and washing your cups, washing your hands. Forget that. God rested from his works. You, you forget too. Verse 11, let us then make every effort to enter that rest. Now see how paradoxical that is. You work, you make an effort to enter rest, into, enter, into rest. It almost sounds contradictory. It's not. It's paradoxical. Here's the answer to that paradox. We don't strive to do good works to get saved. We strive to see that we are not doing good works to get saved. We strive to see that we have entered into his rest, where there are no works righteousness, where there is no works righteousness. And by the way, making an effort to enter into his rest, that shows to me that rest cannot be heaven. It means rest from legalistic works. Not It doesn't mean rest in heaven. Because why should we make an effort to go to heaven? Really? we got to make an effort to go to heaven? Does that mean we go out and try to commit suicide? Does it mean we work, 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 trying to get God to love us? I don't think any Christian believes that. So, again, I think it's talking about resting from legalistic works. Christians should cease from striving to earn their own salvation by keeping laws. This is basic gospel doctrine, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Titus 3, 5. He saved us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
Every false gospel says you have to do something to be saved. You've got to tithe. You've got to witness door to door. You've got to go to mass. You've got to confess to a priest. You've got to be baptized. Uh-uh. Now, let me give one shout-out to the view I don't agree with, that this is talking about the rest in heaven, that, so we're supposed to make an effort to go to heaven to enter the rest. Where do people get the idea that heaven is the rest rather than freedom from works? Revelation 14:13 says this, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, the dead who die in the Lord from now on are blessed. Yes, says the Spirit, let them rest from their labors, for their works follow them. So there you have Christians resting in heaven. They're not working anymore. And that, of course, would tend to make you think that the rest is heaven. But I don't think so. As I've said over and over again, the whole context is about keeping Hebrews from going back to a legalistic Judaism. The context is not about encouraging the readers to escape the rigors of this life so that they can go to a rest in heaven. Verse 11 the author says, make every effort to enter into that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. What pattern of disobedience? That, of course, refers to the incredible disobedience of the Old Testament Jews under Moses. Mainly, And, of course, their main point of disobedience was that they failed to enter the land with the rest. They didn't enter the land. Hebrews 3.19, for we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Hebrews 4.2, For we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith, or because the word was not united with them in faith. They were disobedient. They didn't enter the land. Being under the law is an act of disobedience. It's not a meritorious act like so many people proclaim. Look at me. Look at all the good laws I'm doing. No, that is not meritorious. It is something that the author here calls disobedience so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Now, one oddball suggestion by John Gill I want to mention before I shut it down. Verse 10, for the person who has entered his rest. Well, that's obviously somebody who's escaped legalism. I would think that's obvious, but not John Gill. I got five exclamation points by this opinion of his. He's the great speculator. He says it's Jesus. He says for the person, i.e. Jesus, who has entered his rest, has rested from his own works. Well, I mean, I guess that's possible. I don't believe it for a minute because Jesus did enter his rest after he died on the cross. Well, let's read Gill's quote. I, the reason I give weird interpretations is because, you know, one day I, there's a lot of interpretations I believe now that I used to think were weird as they could be, but now I find them very mainstream and easy to understand and easy to follow and easy to affirm. So weirdness is sort of a relative term, and and perhaps one day I might give a weird interpretation that I might come back later listening to these audios and say, you know, I think I think that might be weird, but I think it's right. And you might find the same thing. So I try to give a broad panoply of opinion, if possible. So let's see what Jesus said about this person who has entered into God's rest. Quote, a single person is only spoken of and not many, and the rest entered into is his own, which cannot be said of any other. And besides, a comparison is run between his entrance into rest and ceasing from his works, and God's resting the seventh day and ceasing from his works, which can only agree with him, with Jesus. And besides, Christ is immediately spoken of and at large described in Hebrews 4.12, which is the next verse. Now he entered into his rest, not when he was laid in the grave, but when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God as having done his work. I don't think so, but that, he made a pretty good point. Of course, the lawyers for O.J. Simpson made a pretty good defense. They got him off, but you know, but nobody believes what they said was true. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished with Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, entering into the rest of God. In our next audio, the last 
portion of Hebrews chapter 4. We'll talk about Jesus, our great high priest, and we'll talk about the Word of God, which is sharper and more active than any two-edged sword. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.